Hello, Dr. Tomba. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, for our listeners, today we are joined by Dr. Emil Tampa. He is a senior scientist at the Institute for Work and Health, as well as an associate and associate professor in the Department of Economics at McMaster University and at the Dalalana School of Public Health, University of Toronto, respectively. As the executive director of the Inclusive Design for Employment Access Social Innovation Laboratory, he spearheads initiatives to foster equity, diversity, inclusion, and accessibility in the workplace. We're also joined by our producer Neha Rao for this episode, and I'm your host, Aditi. Dr. Tampa, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. We always start with one question, one common question that we have for all our speakers, because we're always curious to know, how did you get into, get into this field? Um, can you tell us a little bit about how, with your background as an economist, you came into the field of occupational health and specifically into work disability policy? Okay, well, it's, it's, a, it's a long journey that brought me to where I am today, um, but an exciting one, something I very much enjoyed, um, the learnings um, over this path of my research experience. Um, I started off doing a PhD in health and labor economics, so it seemed very befitting for the work I'm doing today, but it wasn't actually a planned process. Um, originally, I was focusing a lot on retirement issues, uh, health and retirement issues in my PhD thesis. But when I started at the Institute for Work and Health, it opened up a number of doors in the area of occupational health and safety and workers' compensation issues. That's one of our core areas of inquiry at the Institute for Work and Health. We're, our core funding comes from the workers' compensation system here in Ontario, Canada. And so um, a lot of my early research focused on workers' compensation policy, um, particularly looking at the consequences of work injury persons of, with long-standing disabilities acquired through work exposures and what their labor market outcomes were following permanent impairment from a work injury. So I, I looked at the life course of people, you know, after permanent impairment and, and, and just trying to understand, you know, what determine good or bad outcomes and trying to understand what kinds of factors help people get back into the labor market. I had a, 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 a long year, multi, a long-term multi-year um, funding envelope called um, the consequences of work injury that came from our our federal funding agency called the Social Science and Humanities Research Council was funded for six years to look at the health, labor market, well-being, family issues of, of people with permanent impairments from a work injury. And um, through that work, we did it was it was a community university research alliance. So I worked very closely with the injured worker community and with the policy arena to better understand what the challenges were and how to get past them. And when we were doing that work, we realized that some of the pathways that injured workers took in terms of support seeking um, went beyond the workers' compensation system. In Canada, I'm not sure how it is in other countries, but in Canada, we have very compartmentalized disability support programs depending on where your injury or illness or how your disability onset arose. Workers' compensation funds and supports um, work injury related and work disease related outcomes, you know, in terms of the healthcare um, needs. 
um, and then the return to work needs. But if you acquire an injury um, or disability from other sources, there's other programs that come into play, private insurance. We also have a federal Canada Pension Plan program that's for dis disabled persons who are challenged in getting back into the labor market to provide wage replacement benefits. There's social assistance that has a component that's focused on persons with, with long-standing disabilities to provide wage replacement and other benefits as well. And what we found was a lot of the, the people who had acquired their disability from a work injury were, were looking for support from these other programs. Um, and that made us realize that we need to think about the work disability policy system as a whole, rather than thinking about these pockets of programs that were meant to serve particular subsets of that population because the navigation process through the different programs was very um, ad hoc challenging and, and took a lot of people's time, sometimes years of seeking to the supports that they needed to be able to um, you know, address their health needs, but also in order to help them address getting back into the labor market. And so the next iteration of what we were doing um, turned to looking at the disability policy system as a whole in Canada. And so we got funding for um, another longer term um, funding initiative from our Social Science and Humanities Research Council to, was called the Partnership Grant, where we work with all of the stakeholders mm -hmm. in the broader work disability policy arena to think about how we can help bring those different pockets of support programs together in some way, um, bring some cohesion to it. So we dealt with a lot of navigational issues about support seeking and thinking about how the policy arena can hopefully work together amongst these different programs to help support a more unified approach to um, supporting people who, who need help, both health-wise um, in terms of the healthcare system, but also in, in helping them get back into the, the labor market as well. So, so that Center for Research on Work Disability Policy, which is the name we gave that, that initiative, went on for about seven years. And um, it was quite successful. We have an ongoing um, conference we do every year called Disability Working Canada, which was a spin-off from that initiative. Um, right. That, that re was a stakeholder conference where all of the, the people in the work disability policy arena who are stakeholders in that policy arena come together around um, December 3rd, which is the International Day of Persons with Disabilities. We come mm -hmm. together to talk about some of these navigational issues, the support seeking challenges, the challenges of getting back into the labor market. Um, and we do that every year. We've been doing it for about seven years. We also do what, what we call a federal, provincial, territorial policy roundtable, where we get the um, different policymakers in the different parts of, of Canadian kind mm -hmm. of government roles. You know, there's a provincial role, territorial role, and then there's a federal role. They come together to dialogue around um, how they can work together to better support mm -hmm. persons with disabilities. And, and um, that that's been ongoing as well for the last about seven years. Um, quite successful. The policymakers are very keen to help support a more cohesive approach to support seeking for persons with disabilities. Um, that has ended. Um, and now our next iteration is this social innovation laboratory that's focused mm -hmm. on what we describe as demand side capacity building. Um, and and it, we call it demand side capacity buildings. But one of the challenges we realized was employers were struggling on how to do a good job of supporting persons with disabilities, whether they come from the workers' compensation world or they come from you know, other parts of the labor right. market um, and, and, and need some accommodations to be able to work, whether it's at the front end with recruitment, hiring and onboarding, or when it, whether it's a, a longstanding employee within mm -hmm. the organization and they have late onset of disability and they need some help you know, in, in, in meeting the challenges mm -hmm. that they have 
through accommodations. And because we saw employers struggling on how to do that well, we realized that we need to focus a lot more attention on, on that side of the equation. A lot of effort in the past has been focused on what we described as the supply side, skilling up workers with disabilities, getting them job ready. Um, and that's an important area, but even when they're job ready, sometimes they struggle to find employment because on the employer side, because the demand side right. struggles to, to accommodate their needs. And so skilling up employers, getting them up to speed on how to do accommodations well was an important area we felt warranted research inquiry and, mm -hmm. and research to practice, you know, trying to identify solutions to these problems based on knowledge that we're generating as academics. Um, and so so that's our, our, our social innovation laboratory that we're, we're running just got funded a couple of years ago and is ongoing till 2027. So I remember our last conversation, we were talking about the importance of doing field work. And while you were talking through the different initiatives that are happening uh, and the conference, uh, it's marvelous to hear that so many systems are coming together um, to solve and um, not solve, but to make sure that people with work disabilities are taken care of and they're getting the support that they need. Um, at the same time, uh, there is this area of field work that I know that you are uh, very focused on making sure that we're listening to the people who actually have these disabilities yes. and making sure. So yeah. how do you ensure that those two ends um, like the left hand is talking to the right hand, essentially. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, a good question, and I'm glad you're asking that because it's, it's a really central part of the work I do with my colleagues. Um, it, first of all, I, I want to mention that it's solution focused. I mean, a lot of times at the front end of, of research, you're trying to find out what the issues are, what the challenges are, where are their knowledge gaps. That's really important at the front end, but we also want to take it a bit further and find solutions that are knowledge based, based on our research. One of the things we do, though, speaking directly to your question, is um, what, what we describe as co-design. The partners, the stakeholders are active um, participants in the research process with all of the initiatives that I've just described, the three of them. The first one was a community university research alliance. They described it as that um, from the funder, where you're working directly with the community to, to help find solutions. The second one was very partner driven as well, the Center for Research on Work Disability Policy. And, and the current one, the, the Social Innovation Laboratory called IDEA, Inclusive Design for Employment Access, is, is a very explicitly co-designed approach where we're working with partners. They are both part of the research process, but they also manage jointly the initiative. So we have mm -hmm. five incubator hubs and each of those incubator hubs are jointly managed by an academic and, and a stakeholder who, who is, has worked in the, the space for a long time sort of thing mm -hmm. so that they have a better sense of what the challenges are than we do yeah. as academics. So we depend on them to get a sense of what we need to prioritize. We also start off our research process with um, uh, this, we have this five-step methodology we developed um, as part of our, our research paradigm. And at the front end, what we do is we um, do environmental scans, um, talking to key informants in this area of inquiry, um, both within Canada and internationally to identify both um, issues that they're they're aware of that need to be addressed, but also solutions, promising practices that they've mm -hmm. seen that appear to work well, maybe on some small scale in a, in a local jurisdiction or in a, within a company. So we, we do a lot of environmental scanning at the front end to 
identify what that field knowledge is, mm -hmm. as well as synthesizing the, the peer-reviewed literature in that space, as well as grade literature. So that's all part of our environmental scanning at the front end so that we have a good handle on yeah. the knowledge base, base and then think about, well, where are there still gaps that need research inquiry? And then we work closely with our partners to identify solutions, you know, test them out on a small yeah. scale to see how, how they work in different contexts. Sometimes they need a bit of tweaking for different types of contexts. And then we think about scaling, getting it uh, implemented across a particular sector across Canada if we find it's very promising and is broadly generalizable. So the scaling part is really critical to get it into the system to create a new normal about how things are done. In the case of employer capacity building, you know, mm -hmm. some of the solutions are about workplace systems and partnerships or how all of these stakeholders in the workplace environment, you know, the employer, the worker, maybe in some cases labor or union or yeah. representation is all part of that workplace stakeholder group, working together with them to help scale these solutions across a whole sector, across the country, because we want to have high impact. One of the key um, missions of our social innovation laboratories that have a high impact over this six-year funding right. outlook that we have. So we really want to show that we can move the needle forward in terms of the employment of persons with disabilities over that time period. That's really uh, incredible work that you're doing there. Um, but you. moving away from this, um, mm -hmm. your keynote for Primus is focused on how economic evaluation can provide critical input into policy and factors at workplace and system levels. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. uh, we already did cover a bit of that in the previous uh, answers, but can you elaborate on why such evaluations are necessary? Yeah, 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 I think they're absolutely critical. In general, I would say measurement and evaluation on an ongoing basis is really critical. That's something we promote all the time mm -hmm. is this notion of, of ongoing monitoring and evaluation, not just on the economic side, but on all kinds of relevant outcomes. Um, so I think of that as also in, informing a, process called continual improvement. Some of my background um, work that I've done in this space is around developing um, standards, you know, mm -hmm. ISO type standards. In Canada, we have a Canadian Standards Association that does standards development for management systems. Right. I've developed a couple of them with the CSA, the Canadian Standards Association. One of them we did was on work disability management systems, um, which I chaired the technical committee. It was, I think it was released in 2020. Um, we've done a couple of other ones, equity, diversity, inclusion in, in the building trades. Um, that's just out for review currently. So, so th that standards process is often framed around this notion of continual improvement. And to do continual improvement, you need to do monitoring and evaluation and an ongoing assessment of the progress being made uh, or, or maybe places where there needs to be um, additional efforts put out sort of thing. So what, what gets measured gets addressed. It gets dealt with, right? So if you're not measuring it, you don't know where there's gaps, right? So I think economics is an important part of that measurement and evaluation process. One of the key things that employers in particular always ask us when we suggest, you know, some of the solutions that we've identified as being promising um, ways to address some of the challenges that they experience is, um, what's the business case? You know, what is the economics for it? Is it in our interest to invest, you know, resources into, into these initiatives, right? So we need to be able to answer those questions yeah. at the employer level, but also at the systems level, when we suggest 
promising practices that are maybe more systems level for workers' compensation mm -hmm. systems or work disability policy systems. Then, too, they need to think about what is the cost and what are the benefits. And they'll only go forward with solutions that we propose if they understand and realize the win-win that's there for them, that the benefits outweigh the costs. We even do that at the country level. I've been involved in several um, studies where we did what's described as regulatory impact analysis of, of new regulations coming on stream at the federal government level. Um, it's part of um, a new law that came into effect in 2019 called the Accessible Canada Act. Mm -hmm. It's an initiative that's being spearheaded by federal government to be um, to, to make Canada a, a bit much, much more inclusive and accessible and, and society for all persons, you know, particularly focused on persons with disabilities and labor market um, engagement of persons with disabilities. And a number of regulations are coming on stream to address some of the requirements of the Accessible Canada Act. And one of the, the requirements of bringing new regulation in Canada is to do uh, what they call a regulatory impact analysis, which is essentially a cost-benefit analysis. So I've done a couple of them for new regulations that are coming on stream with the Accessible Canada Act. So it requires, you know, obviously identifying what are the benefits to society across all of the different stakeholders and what are the costs to society. And they'll only bring on new regulations if they can show that the benefits to society outweigh the cost. So doing cost-benefit analysis, even at those systems level, at the country level, are really critical. I've done similar work in the EU, looking at work injury and illness at the country level, where we developed. This is going to be measurement. my next question. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, sorry. Maybe I'm. In this, no, no, no. Go on, go on. This okay. is great. So we've done some work with the with EU OSHA to identify a methodology or develop a methodology to, on how to do this measurement paradigm of the costs and the benefits of work injury and illness at the country level. So we developed the framework and then we piloted it for five countries um, to test it out to make sure it was, it, it was operational at, at the country level. We developed that, it's a peer-reviewed publication. Um, and then that methodology is being rolled up across the EU, across all of the different countries um, that are part of the EU as a, as a monitoring and evaluation process at the country level. The idea is that if you monitor and evaluate the, the economic burden of work injury and illness at the country level, you have a better handle on where there's gaps that need to be addressed. If the burdens continue to be substantial in certain sectors of the economy, you think, okay, there's some work needed to be done here. What are some solutions we can implement in this sector to, to, to reduce those burdens? Um, so it's a good within country over time monitoring and evaluation tool, but it's also a good um, tool to do cross country comparisons as well. If you see some country doing better in terms of reducing their burdens over time in terms of work injury and illness, you want to investigate, well, what are they doing differently than our country and what can we adopt or generalize to our context that might help solve some of the challenges we're having to help reduce those burdens. So it c continues to reinforce this idea of monitoring and evaluation on the economic side is really, really critical, but also across other m metrics as well. You know, I, I'm a strong proponent of qualitative metrics as well. I do a lot of qualitative research myself and lots of things just don't have um, measurement paradigms yet that are quantitative, but are really important outcomes to be um, cognizant of. You know, quality of life is a critical one. We've tried to put some metrics around quality of life, but sometimes we don't capture it very well. Um, 
you know, quantitatively. Um, and so you want to describe it with qualitative measures. Uh, on, at the workplace level, sometimes things like job satisfaction is really important, you know, to, for, for retention purposes. People leave their job if they're not happy with their job, if they feel they're not being accommodated well, if they're finding challenges. So, so I, I really encourage employers to measure both qualitative and quantitative outcomes um, of, you know, their, their, their performance on the human resources side to have a better handle on where there's some challenges that need to be addressed. Um, speaking of challenges, you did speak about uh, cost and benefit analysis and how it's difficult to get companies to agree to implement certain things if uh, if the results don't measure up or if the results don't make sense. Um, but what would you say are some of the bigger challenges that organizations face when they're trying to implement uh, business management initiatives and build a, and build like a business case? Yeah, good question. There's a number of challenges. The first at the front end is just letting them um, letting them know that there's there is a business case that it's a win-win. So so that's a good sales pitch to get them interested in in, in considering it. There's sometimes challenge just time-wise, you know, because you know they're busy doing what they have to do to to survive. Um, and then also sometimes they don't have the capacity or the the skill sets in house. To implement some of these interventions, particularly for small businesses, um, you know, where maybe one person plays multiple roles in a small business, and a small business owner might be the HR person, might be the the general manager, might be doing all of the finance and accounting as well. Somebody like that finding the time to implement something new and that might be in their best best interest long run. In the short run, it can be a challenge for them to find the capacity, the time to do it, and, and maybe not have the know how as well in house. So sometimes we try to build communities of practice where there's peer-to-peer support amongst the stakeholders in, in workplaces. That really helps. You know, sometimes you can reach out to some of their peers to find out you know, what are some quick fix solutions that we can do to address these, some of these challenges. Yeah. Um, you know, how, how what have you done in order to implement this this new approach? You know, how did you find it work best in in your context? So that peer-to-peer support is really really critical. There are communities of practice in different forums. I know the CSA. Um, the Canadian Standards Association with their standards that they develop often will have communities of practice around some of the standards where there's a platform for them, for peers to, to support each other, you know, in the work disability policy arena there is as well. Even even with the governments, our our, our our federal provincial territory policy round table is somewhat of a communities of practice with governments from different levels of, of government in Canada come together to dialogue around some of their challenges and try to help jointly find solutions, work together to find ways forward to address some of these issues in the work disability policy arena. Do you have any um, sort of like starting points where companies like these, like using small and mid-sized companies can begin to include comprehensive work disability policies and work like in places where people with disabilities are overlooked? Yeah, yeah, um, it's a good question. Um, some of the, the solutions we, develop um, need to target specific needs like small business so bringing it down to a level that's approachable what are the essential you know maybe three or four or five things you can do 
to be more accessible and inclusive of persons with disabilities as an employer, you know, and keep it really simple. What are the really hot button issues that you can address quickly, reasonably, with with, with little investment of resources, and, and, and um, you know, think about you know implementing those first, right? So so bringing it down to a level that's really approachable is really critical, and, and working with 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 some of the small business communities as well. You know, we are working at the municipal level with, with you know business improvement associations in, in different areas in retail and commercial yeah. type things where they have some peer-to-peer support to, 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 to support each other in, in advancing some of these issues in their workplaces. But bringing it down to a really approachable level, you know, the essential things that they need to do to get started. Because for a lot of organizations, this is completely new terrain. And you can't throw right. at them some complex, even a CSA standard is, is pretty generic and it's hard to digest, you know, so they need implementation guidance. What do I need to do to pick up some of the essential parts of this standard? So we develop implementation guidance really designed specifically for target audiences. So what do, what would be like an example, like what is the first thing that a small company can do to make sure they're more inclusive? Yeah. Well, one of the biggest I, I, what I'm hearing also is that it depends on the use case, and I certainly don't yeah. want to put you no, on the no, spot. No, 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 no. That's that's a really good question and, and and totally relevant. And I'm glad you've been asking it because there are some some things that once you realize it, it's pretty obvious. Like one of the biggest issues is stigma, right? And 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 it's right. not about resources. It's just about attitudinal change. You know, you know, realizing that there's talent amongst you know, the, the population of persons with disabilities, lots of talent that's just not tapped into. And oftentimes accommodations have very little external cost to them. It's about just a different attitude being more flexible. You know, some organizations allow flex time for family needs, but never think to give flex time for, for persons with disabilities because they need a, you know, maybe slightly different schedule because they have yeah. struggle in the morning getting to work or sometimes working from home. You know, we've done that with COVID and, you know, pandemic and realized it, it, it can actually work quite well, but we never realized to do have that flexibility sometimes for persons with disabilities where, you know, maybe sometimes navigating transit systems can be a challenge to somebody with mobility issues or someone with neurodiversity and would prefer to work from home some days kind of thing you know now we realize well that's totally doable and and you can be just as productive but with technologies that we have available it 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 it, it, it works as well as going into a site specific location where everybody else is based there kind of thing and so we realize sometimes that just doing something different isn't so scary and, and, and <laughs> diversity is actually part of our humanity and, and there's lots of talent to be tapped into and sometimes diversity create results in more creativity when people come to the table with different lived experiences they see the world differently they bring new insights into the organization into the teamwork kind of thing and so it's actually a win-win you know it can be more productive more creative more opportunities are unfold when you allow your team to be more diverse and embrace that diversity rather than fear it. So that stigma, I think, is something that's really critical for most organizations, particularly small business, because we often get used to that tunnel vision. This is how we've always done it, right? And so you don't can't see beyond that that that, that historic way of, of doing things. And it just sometimes causes a disruption like COVID makes you wake up to the fact that we can do things differently. And yet, you see people returning back to the office. Yeah, yeah. Now, now, now we're we're trying to get people back to the office. We've all gotten very comfortable working from home. <laughs> 
And especially for people with disabilities, everybody was living the way they were living for two years. And now yeah. everybody else is going back yeah. to the way things yeah. were. Yeah. And yeah. they're being overlooked again. Yeah. yeah. And, so, and definitely there's some challenges. You know, there's a lot of isolation and mental health issues that might unfold when you're isolated. So, so we need to find new ways of engaging, communicating, having rapport. On, on Zoom or other platforms that people use if they're working remotely. And, and that's really critical. So organizations are obviously trying to think of creative ways of creating that cohesion, that social cohesion, that sense of community amongst the workforce, even when they're not on site together in the same, in yeah. the same space. That's really important as well. Uh, do you think advances, I, I know that most of your work is centered in Canada and you just spoke about your work in EU, um, mm -hmm. in the EU region, but uh, do you think countries uh, like India and in South Asia, uh, is something like this possible in other countries? Or do you think the challenges will be different depending on what country we're talking about? I, I think it, a lot of it is broadly generalizable to, to, to whatever kind of context. I think that the broader issues we're talking about, equity, diversity, inclusion, and accessibility, are broad concepts that, that that any country, any employer, wherever they might be based, needs to needs to embrace. Um, and, and actually, some of the, the the students working with me are doing some of their work in India. One of my students just came back from India, collecting data from a worksite that's really advanced in including persons with disabilities. A large fraction of their workforce is people with sight loss and hearing loss in the manufacturing sector in in Bangalore. Actually, he was based doing his data collection in Bangalore. So. Prime example, the principles that he, he has learned doing his PhD studies here in Canada, he's taking to a, a, a South Asian context and, and doing some case study analysis with, with really great data from a really progressive organization. That's so, that's so encouraging and inspiring to hear. And I'm really happy that this work is happening. And thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you for um, asking these really pertinent questions. I want to share as much as I can from our learnings. Kind of thing. I think it only works when we all work together. When we think about the global economy and supply chains, one of the key things that we're going to move into shortly in some of the work we're doing in our social innovation laboratory is looking at supply chains and disability and inclusion in the supply chain. So much of our industry is connected across jurisdictions. And I think it's not something that an organization should take just to their immediate workforce here in Canada or wherever they are based, but think about their responsibilities across the supply chain mm -hmm. and, and inclusion, equity, diversity, inclusion across the supply chain. So I, I think it only works if we all work together, given our global economy. Right. Um, and, and now with a lot of work being remote, a lot of the people that are being employed at organizations are abroad, you know, for whatever reason, um, and, yeah. and, and because there's talent in other countries that they need to tap into. So they need to think about these issues on a global scale. It's not country or jurisdiction specific. Um, that makes sense. Thank you for that. Um, we spoke about remote work um, for a bit, and now I want to, um, I know you talked about this question before we hit record, <laughs> but uh, you, in your research, and we'll link the paper in the description, but you allude to the fragmentation of the future of work and how it's an emerging public health issue. Uh, how do yes. some groups of workers potentially experience conditions that contribute to vulnerability in the future of work? And yes. we did discuss some of this before yes, as well. Yes, yes. That's a very important thing that we need to all think about and, and, and work on addressing. You know, work is changing. The future of work is, is, is going to be very different than it has been in the past. 
I come from an older cohort when, where people, when they finished their studies, would go into a, a job, you know, maybe at the entry level, but spend their whole careers with one organization. You know, yeah. that's, I think, a, a old world system of that doesn't exist very often in, in for the newer cohorts coming into the labor market. So they often will be um, having multiple jobs, sometimes concurrently, sometimes consecutively, but their career paths take them across many different organizations or, 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 or over their time in mm. the labor market. Another thing that's happening also is that um, work is being farmed out to people you might think of as sole proprietors or contractors. So, so much more work is being contracted out rather than being done in-house. So organizations need to think about their responsibilities across all the ways they contract for, for labor, whether they describe them as their employees, whether it's temping agencies, whether it's farmed out work to, to small um, sole proprietors or small organizations, and they might come onto the work site to do work, but they're not directly employees of that organization. When we do um, best practice guidance, particularly standards, we use the term worker rather than employee, because worker more broadly defines the people who are working in, on a particular activity, maybe on a particular work site, but sometimes maybe even remotely, but are working together to produce some kind of valued output, whether it's in manufacturing, whether it's in service sector. And all of those people are um, being influenced or affected by the experiences of working um, together for a particular organization, whether they're employees or not. So, so we really need to think about the worker in, in, in when we think about labor market issues, not just employees, because employees may be just a smaller subset of that broader notion of, of, of workers. Okay. And, and because people are moving around from job to job, we have to think about their career trajectories and the portability sometimes of their benefits as well. One of the biggest challenges is um, the way we've designed benefits packages in Canada and probably other countries as well, is it's often located with the employer, you know, whether it's your pension, you know, mm. you know your retirement pension, whether it's it's um, sick days and, and or vacation time or, or extended health care, dental plans. And you lose that when you move to another employer and you have to start all over again. And then some employers may not have those same packages available. And so we need to think about how we can make um, the benefits that people need to, to, to live uh, you know, a, a good life and, and, and think about their future that make it more portable and flexible. Um, that's an ongoing work that various um, academics have been working on thinking about how precarious employment changes the context of work experiences and changes the, the trajectories that people experience in the labor market and how we can do a better job of allowing for that flexibility because it's just the reality of, of the labor market these days. Um, yeah. But thinking about those longer run issues of, of sustainability of, of, of both their benefits and, and career trajectories that are progressive and think about their future needs, particularly as they transition into maybe older age um, workers and thinking about their pensions and retirement things that they that, that, that they have um, appropriately planned for and have the capacity to, 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 to do those transitions into retirement in, in a good way um, I was just like I was thinking about how um, how systems work in Canada and how there's so much work that's happening on work disability very specifically in Canada whereas in India, most in most organizations that's not even a concept mm -hmm. 
Okay. Um, so, well, well, there's some good work being done in, in Southeast Asia and South Asia. Uh, a colleague of mine, she recently passed away, Marcia Ryu. Most of her work was being done in India, in, in, in um, um, Nepal, in, in Bangladesh, um, really looking at employer side issues and capacity to, yeah. to, 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 to hire recruit higher on board and sustain persons with disabilities in the labor market. So so there's been a lot of good work being done in various parts of the world. Some of my colleagues who are part of our initiative are in Australia. They're doing a lot of great work in Australia as well. A couple of research centers in, in the University of Sydney and University of Melbourne are, are focused on these kinds of issues. So so I, I see lots of great work being done around the world. I think. And, and it's actually important that we all connected to each other in order to learn from each other, you know, and see, okay, that's really great what you're doing there. Let's see if it works in, in the Canadian context or maybe the reverse. Well, let's see if that Canadian thing that you guys are doing will work in, in, in another context, I think. I, I yeah. think there there's a lot of gains to be realized um, by working jointly across jurisdictional boundaries in, in, in groups. You know, there's a group of economists that came together recently in, in Denmark, they, the, the, a new funding envelope that they have there to, to help advance economic um, issues, um, economic evaluation issues in, in, in work and well-being. And, and again, really important to work together because a lot of um, the measurement evaluation only um, um, has, um, I guess, substantive um, um, advances in the field if we consent through consensus we agree on how we should do the, these kinds of evaluations. You know, um, we've tried to advance the margins through some of our work that we've done with regulatory impact analysis for for the federal regulations coming on board with the Accessible Canada Act. Some of those um, those advances we've shared with our colleagues when I actually went to a conference there in December, mm -hmm. um, shared with them at a workshop some of the work we were doing. Hopefully they'll pick up on some of that, advance it even further and, and build consensus on how best to measure these things because comparability is really critical. When I do a literature synthesis of economic evaluations across different jurisdictions, if everybody's measuring things differently, it's really hard to do any comparative work to saying, well, does this work better or not? You know, I don't know because they use different metrics. You know, they're, 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 the way they, they presented their results is different and, and that creates a challenge for building on a knowledge base. So I think consensus building within disciplines and across disciplines and across jurisdictions is absolutely critical. A lot of your work emphasizes on the importance of collaboration between researchers, policymakers, and other stakeholders. Mm -hmm. um, how can interdisciplinary partnerships uh, and knowledge exchange initiatives um, be fostered to address the, the complex challenges that are associated with MSDs and work disabilities? Yeah. I'm glad you asked. That's a really, really great question. And actually, actually, absolutely critical. I mean, I feel that my work is only meaningful when it can be used and picked up, gets picked up and used in the field, right? And so, so um, it's great to build knowledge for, for for the benefit of other academics, and we advance kind of how we do these things. You know, measurement evaluation processes need to be advanced so so that we can do a better job of them. But ultimately, what when you do applied research, it's most relevant to the, to the policy arena, whether it's workplace policy or systems policy. Yeah. So working with the stakeholders is absolutely critical. I, my whole research career has, has been of that ilk of where we have the stakeholders involved in the research process at the front end. When they feel that they're part of the research process, they understand it better. 
there's buy-in. They become your champions to help them um, promote it, to scale it up across the sector. So bringing them on board at the front end of the research process has multiple wins. Um, you know, they sometimes have a better handle on what the challenges are and how to contextualize solutions. Mm -hmm. You know, so they help with the research process directly. They, as I mentioned, they become your champions as well. Once their research is mature enough, it needs to be picked up. So, so in complex policy arenas like occupational health and safety, you know, whether it's focused on a particular subset of, of occupational health and safety issues, such as musculoskeletal injuries, or whether it's about disability policy type issues, there are complex policy arenas, multiple stakeholders involved. Okay. There's the workplace parties, you know, the worker, labor, unions, okay. management, employers. Then there's all the wraparound supports, all the service providers that support them as mm -hmm. well. Then there's the policy arena, some policy may be local, you know, in, in municipal, some of it might be provincial, some of it might be federal. Um, so there's many layers of stakeholders that need to be engaged. And it only works when all of those stakeholders are at the table, at the front end, so that they can help inform the research process and help with the knowledge to practice, the knowledge mobilization part of it as well. They have to be part of that so they have the buy-in, the understanding, and, 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 and the desire then to champion it because they, they, they realize that this truly does work. You know, it's a hard sales pitch to do research in a silo and then go out there and say let's yeah. try to market it after the fact you know try to get uptake through pushing it out the door you know right. through some communication strategy if people haven't been involved at the front end so so i would encourage anybody doing applied research to make sure it's multidisciplinary or transdisciplinary and that it's um stakeholder um involvement in stakeholder driven co-design processes wherever possible so that they're part of the research process and that's also really good advice for students who are now starting research in policymaking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Most of them, yeah, I, I, I encourage all the students that work with me to go out there and talk to stakeholders before you even decide what you're going to do for your thesis. You might have some area of inquiry that you're interested in, you know, whether it's work to policy, whether it's occupational health and safety, um, whatever area, whether it's workplace type issues or system type issues, mm -hmm. you know, you might have some interest in some area, but go out and talk to the stakeholders, find out what's happening out on the shop floor, in the field, get a sense, get a sense of what's, what's really, you know, challenging to them, what they're excited about, what they think needs to be prioritized. And then you can work on the, the research um, kind of delineation of the specificity of the research question you want to address in your in your thesis if you're doing a PhD or master's thesis once you have a good handle of what's happening in the field I think so and, and then there those people will be there for you if you need to do primary data collection you know it's it's a really challenge to do primary data collection a, a lot of times when you knock on somebody's door on a cold call they're too busy to give you the time to right. to, to think about entertaining them in, in, in data collection kind of thing if you want to go to a workplace to collect data so getting them involved at the front end framing the, 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 the research priority setting process with them in mind and their needs in mind is a really great en entry into kind of the, 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 the disability policy you know, the occupational health and safety field directly involving stakeholders through that process. So make sure everybody's getting a seat at the table. Yeah, exactly. From the beginning. And, yeah. and, and sometimes I, I find like I have a methods toolkit as an economist, you know, doing economic evaluation or policy analysis 
but sometimes I don't have a good handle on what the pressing issues are in a field that I have right. not explored yet. You know, I may do some reading of peer-reviewed literature to get a sense of what's already been done, but then I want to go out there and talk to those stakeholders to find out what's currently really pressing to yeah. them, what's really priority issues that they feel needs could benefit from some knowledge to practice process. Hmm. Uh you're doing a workshop at Primus, uh, I it's called Building the Business Case for Occupational Health and Safety Disability Management Initiatives. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. A lot. We already did talk quite a bit about building a business case, but is what can attendees expect out of the workshop? Okay. okay. Yeah, I'm glad you're asking because I, I really feel like I have a bias, but this is an important area. Um, and, and particularly because there's a few people who have a good handle on how to do this well. And over my career, I, I've spent quite a bit of time thinking about developing how best to frame business cases for different audiences. I teach um, in the industrial relations um, department at the University of Toronto, uh, a course where we, the business case is a key focus of what we do. I also teach another um, a course at Dalai Lana School of Public Health and Public Health Policy Analysis, where we also look at the business case. Um, and then I do business cases for a broader audience as well, so for stakeholder audiences. So it might be framed slightly differently while you'll focus less on the heavy duty econometrics or, or statistical analysis you need to do that too but but the emphasis will be more on on, on how to um, frame the solutions you're identifying through your research for for broader consumption for uptake through in, in the policy arena workplace or systems level and so in this workshop i'm going to take that approach where um, you know we need to have a good handle on the business case. As I said, what gets measured gets addressed. Yeah. And so people need to know the win-wins the that are there for, for yeah. them before they'll consider taking picking it up. And and framing the 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 product of the business case for the for a targeted stakeholder audience. So you, mm -hmm. you might target you know a workplace stakeholder audience, you might target policymakers in, in, in government, but you need to frame a business case is a customized product that meets the needs of a specific target audience. So it's not a generic thing, it, you know, and it has the economics in it, but it has to have other things as well. You know, you, know, you need to think about what's the context of, of, of the solution you're proposing mm -hmm. and how do you contextualize the solution to meet the needs of that specific context? Right. Um, how do you align it with the existing priorities in that context? You know, how do you um, explain the, the implementation process so that it does get picked up, right? Because, you know, mm -hmm. it's great to say, this is what you need to do, but how do you do it? So implementation is an important part of the business case as well. And then also that really elucidate the the, the win-wins, you know, through the economics and other um, um, metrics that are important to demonstrate the value for the stakeholders. And, and as I mentioned, the implementation is absolutely critical as, as well to help facilitate uptake as well. And, and then oftentimes what, what I'd like to see in, in a business case is an executive summary that mm -hmm. gives a high level overview of what the case right. is for. Because I've seen business cases that are like 50, 60 pages. Not everybody has time to read 50 or 60 <laughs> pages. But if you want to do an elevator pitch to some senior finance person in an organization or the CEO and you only have, you know, three or four minutes, you need that elevator pitch, you need that executive summary yeah. to, to give them a high level overview of, of what the business case is about, right. you know, what the win-wins are, how to implement it, you know, in a one, two page summary that, that can easily be easily digested. And then the people who are maybe tasked with the 
heavy duty implementation might get into the weeds of all the details of, of your more fulsome business case, but we need to have that summary for the front end for, for the high level decision makers. So I'm going to be working through all of these different components of the business case in this workshop. It's a full day workshop, so it's going to be quite involved. I'll make sure people have some um, thought exercises that they can prepare before the, the workshop, you know, mm -hmm. so that they can build on something they're familiar with that they mm -hmm. feel that it would benefit from a business case so that we can do some really interesting breakout sessions, you know, and, and dialogue around how to customize this concept of a business case for a particular context that they're challenged with that sounds very interesting and i'll make sure that i'll drop in yeah um, and I, I would love to and, and, and the other thing i want to emphasize too is that you don't have to have a lot of economics background to do the business case the courses i mentioned that i teach at the industrial relations and mm -hmm. the public school help school of public health they are students at the graduate level who have had very little economics training and by the end of the course, by the end of the module, they, they're quite comfortable with addressing some of the issues that, that, that um, are, are really economic specific, mm -hmm. but more broadly, they're comfortable with doing the business case. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm trying to frame this workshop for, for a broad audience coming from different, different kind of fields, whether, whether they're in, from the academic field or even policymakers, workplace stakeholders, if they're, they're, they're interested in learning about the business case. Because ultimately, business cases are often done in the workplace by maybe an HR manager, by an occupational health and safety manager, disability manager, they need to be comfortable with, with, with how to do a business case if they want to promote some new initiative that requires some investment of resources because they need to sell that in initiative to the finan chief financial officer or the CEO, or whoever might have the, the ability to give the go ahead to use resources mm -hmm. of the organization. So the business case is a practical tool that not just academics need to be familiar with, but people working in the field need to be comfortable with developing. So I'm trying to get people from the front end where they might think, okay, this is so different and foreign to me. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've never done it before. To after the end of the workshop, hopefully being very comfortable, develop, give them some templates on how how to kind of standardize it, you know, so that they're not always starting off with a blank page, but understand how to drill down on different components of the business case in a good way, so that the solutions that they're proposing will get picked up yeah. and implemented. That's the ultimate goal of the business case. <laughs> I hear that uh, at HR managers, I'm going to give a special shout out to them because <laughs> okay, it seems like this yes. is for them. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, I think uh, we're ready to wrap this up. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, do you have any last uh, passing last thoughts before we end? Um, not, I can't think of anything offhand, but it's, it's, it's been a delight talking to you about the work I do and, and the work I will be doing at the conference and in the workshop. I think I'm really excited about it. I, I, I think it's a wonderful gathering of expertise coming from all over the world. And I feel like I'm going to learn so much just being there and, and, and hearing what other people have been doing in their space, in their, in their field. And then having these opportunities to share and have the dialogue about some of these issues through the workshop and, and between sessions. It's, it's going to be a delightful conference, I'm sure. And I'm really looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to meeting you as well. Pleasure talking to you. <laughs>